Hi, and welcome to this week's ResiCast. We're talking about later living. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. I'm joined by Eugene Marchese from uh, Guild Living. He's one of the co-founders of Guild Living, which is a third age platform that are joint venturing with Legal and General in the UK. We're also joined by Richard Jackson, who is the co-founder at Apache Capital Partners, and Rory O'Hagan, who's director at Sale Architecture. Gentlemen, um, there's obviously quite a depth of demand in the later living end of the market, uh, an aging population growing you know, beyond anyone's imagination, really. But yet the, the market in the UK, Eugene, is, is, is massively behind uh, where your market has been in Australia and, and in New Zealand and, and also in the States. So we're at multiples of, you know, 10, 15 times behind America, aren't we? That's right, yeah. I mean, in... Uh, the, the broad numbers are in Australia, uh, people over the age of uh, 65, there's about 5 to 7% of the population of that population live in a retirement environment. Uh, I think New Zealand's about close to 10%. Uh, the US is, is somewhere around 15% of the population over 65 live in a retirement environment. And currently in the UK, I think it's around 0.6%, but definitely less than 1% of that population are in a retirement, uh, you know, uh, environment, and and that that I think is is the is the biggest issue confronting the UK at the moment. In that there's a huge tsunami of people who are going to turn seventy very soon, and the options for them to downsize and move into a an environment where we use the term care security. Um, is able to be afforded them. So, and you can see that impact. Every, you know, I think there's a story every day in the, you know, in any journal, BBC, Telegraph, Guardian, about the impact that that's all having on the NHS. And 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 fundamentally also on on local councils who are the ones picking up our massively increasing social care tab. And 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 fundamentally, what opportunities do you see for investment? let's be honest, in, in an operational-led real estate to drive down spending in social care, to drive down spending in the National Health Service. Is there an opportunity there? Is there a case to be made by, by people such as yourself to UK government officials to say, hey, guys, help us rewrite the rules of this sector and you could save tens of billions of pounds? I think, I think the opportunity is, is for both. I think it's for both the, the private sector to, to deliver a better model because unless you deliver a better model, you can make all the promises you want, um, but the general populace over the age of 70 in the UK, currently if you did a survey in any town or, or street, um, the, 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 the feedback would be, well, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd take me to a retirement environment kicking and screaming. So, so, so what so, is so, the model? So we, we have to – the, 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 the operators, developers have to do better. It has to. We have to change the environments and the service offerings that are currently being provided because the perception is terrible. Now, once you do that, that leads then to another discussion about doing it well but doing it at scale, then that is a real opportunity for the government to start to release the pressure that's on the health system to allow private industry to, to do a lot, lot of that heavy lifting. Now... You know, you talk to any GP in any local town centre and they'll tell you that most of their, you know, most of the patients that come in during the day 
generally are older people who just want to have a chat, have a, have a talk with them. So that all these symptoms are indicative that, that there is the system's broken, but I'll go back to my original statement that it's up to the investment development operator market to change the offering so that it becomes a real alternative for people to downsize to. And, and Richard Jackson, um, what does better look like? Well, I think if we relate this sector to other sectors that we're developing in and originally in the student accommodation, the bill to rent, what we are seeing is people are coming increasingly experiential and materialism is less important to people these days. I think picking up on Eugene's point, I think what we have to and what is starting to emerge uh, is a shift in that perception by that baby boomer population who have grown up around a home ownership culture and society into one that offers more flexible accommodation. If I look at it subjectively, we develop some care homes. Would I want my mother or father to go and live in there? No, they're very nice, but I wouldn't. But if you look at the retirement village that we're delivering with Audley, and the pipeline, then would I want my parents to go and live there? Absolutely. It's not the end of your life. It's the next stage of your life. And I think the way that Eugene describes his, his business as a third age is a very apt way of, of, of placing that as a product for people who are looking to the next stage of their life, but also that can provide a level of care as and when it's required. So I'm Rory O'Hagan, from a design perspective, mm-hmm. that's what we're talking about. We, we talk about designing for experience rather than simply this historic old school way of thinking about property and showing people a brochure and looking at the, the finishing and looking at the furniture. What we're talking about here is designing for the next stage of someone's life. How, what does that look like from an architecture perspective? Um, I, I think we need to make aspiration the driver. Uh, you know, Heather to, um, it's usually a crisis, a bereavement or a fall was the biggest driver in terms of people moving into accommodation for older people in this country, but actually we can turn that on its head by... Um, to come to a point of strength rather than a point of weakness. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's, you know, it's about a synthesis of design, care, service, uh, and doing that at scale and looking at lessons we have learned in the built-to-rent sector in terms of delivering that holistic... So what lessons? So to, to give us one of the lessons. Uh, it's about a, a front-of-house space that's open to the public in the way that a hotel lobby might be, so that becomes a kind of intergenerational uh, so forum the, for the exchange. it's theatre of space. Yeah, making absolutely. It's about spectacle, it's about movement, people. It's about bringing communities into developments. Uh, it's about, with scale, supporting an amenity offer that you know makes this somewhere that I want to sell my family home to move to, because ultimately this is about... You know, weighing up, is my life going to improve if I move to later living or do I stay where I am and get in domiciliary care? That's that's what we're... That's interesting. And Eugene, what are some of the lessons, um, obviously, as your accent suggests, you're not from around these parts, um, but but what are some of the, the, the interesting learnings that, that you guys at, at Guild Living have brought from Australia? You've, you've got an award-winning scheme in Adelaide that threw up some really fascinating learnings uh, around dementia. Yeah, so so basically, um, because the market, as I mentioned before, is much more mature in Australia and New Zealand, um, we have the benefit of looking at what works and and more importantly, what doesn't work. And the the, the huge a huge opportunity here in the UK is, in effect, we're starting with a clean sheet of paper. So the elements that we understand works from a built environment perspective, um, you know, are things that that re-engage people with their communities, 
there are things, there are elements that that eliminate the issue, eliminate the sense of institutional environments. You know, corridors with grab rails. Um, uh, you know, rooms that feel like a hospital room. You know, with 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 you know not much light. Um, so, so from our perspective, we, the, the 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 built environments that we know work really well are the ones that when you move in, become not just aspirational, but become the sort of places that your children want to come and spend time in, that you are actually proud to tell your friends that I live in this amazing place that's got this, you know, amazing gardens and 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 I'm involved in in programs which are about, you know, uh, growing vegetables that we then, you know, have the chef cook for us. And this this is, what we mo- we've got to move away from this notion that when people get to the age of 65, and, and, and we're talking about, this is a notion that was probably back in 1978. When people get to 65, we're talking about people who are now in their 70s who are still active, working, um, travelling, spending time, uh, you know, changing hobbies, changing careers, all these sort of things. That's why we don't use the word retirement in our schemes. We truly believe that the people who come and live with us are actually entering a third age. And it should be a time where they're the most liberated of all their, all their life. And, and if you think about it, they've got the highest you know, they've got the most money to spend, they've got the most time, and do you know what? Half the time they don't have the issues of uh, of a 40-year-old or a 50-year-old trying to raise families. So why shouldn't we liberate them to what we believe, allow them or, or, or facilitate them living their best life possible from 70 and onwards? And, and what does that mean then? So in terms of, of what, what, is, what are some of those lessons in, in terms of, you talked a little bit about corridors. What, so if you take out corridors, what So for what example, the, the project we did in Adelaide, um, we worked closely with University of Stirling and their Dementia Services Unit. And one thing we quickly realised was that care facilities and high care facilities that were catering for people with dementia typically had people in rooms with corridors. Now, they thought, you know, these, and I've, I've surveyed many of these, and everyone thinks the solution is to provide really good signage and directional signage, or maybe we use colour so they can remember their front doors. Well, what we quickly realised was that was actually creating anxiety and making the residents anxious, which meant that they would sit within their room, and if they weren't, weren't moving out of their room, well, they were starting to retreat both within themselves and, you know, within the community. So what we did is we designed this facility in Adelaide where we took all the corridors out and basically when you walked out of your room, you would walk into a common area that had domestic-style kitchen, lounge, dining rooms. And what that did was it it gave people confidence to actually leave their, their small abode and engage with everyone else. And the amazing part about all that was that then they were moving they were confident, they were eating, they were sleeping. And what that does, the, the bottom line to the operator meant that they didn't have to have, um, you know, uh, they, they actually cut their service provision by 60% because they didn't need people there at night looking after people who weren't sleeping at night and were anxious and getting behavioural issues. It's a very, yeah. very real cost and, and social Absolutely. benefit. Absolutely, dropping to, straight to the bottom line. And, and, and Richard Jackson, in, in terms of some of the projects that Apache Capital has been involved with, in London, such as uh, the, the project you have in, in, in South London and Clapham, with 
Audley, what have been some of the learnings uh, in, in through going through those design processes in terms of how you use these social spaces, not just to create financial value, but to create real social value? Absolutely. Well, the whole scheme was designed around the resident. Um, and one of the areas that Audley came in from the original planning consent that we had was actually to uh, reduce the number of apartments, increase the numbers, sorry, by the, increase the size of those apartments, and really focus on the integration of the amenities and the services on site. And that was also designed because of its relationship of its location next door to Clapham Common to be able to integrate and provide services for the school next door. So we've done a deal with the school that enables them to come and use the pool as an example. We want to have that, and Rory touched on this earlier, the reception area and the library and the lounge and the bars to be able to, the restaurant to be able to utilise by the residents, also by some of the public can come on in as well to try and create this um, social inclusion so it's not a ghetto where people go in, you lock the doors and that's it. This is where there's interaction um, for the residents who live there as well as the public as well. And on top of those basic uh, amenities, we've also, for private use, uh, private dining rooms, pool, for, le for leisure, sauna, steam room and the like. So what we've really tried to do is create as many genuinely used on-site facilities for our residents and to facilitate the use um, of the community. And the more of a community that we can create, the more likely it is following on from Eugene Space to get people out of their apartments and um, to get them using the facilities and to create that environment that people love to live. And the more people enjoy to live, the more it's not just seen in isolation. We interact with the wider community. And, and that's, that's got a very clear economic benefit, hasn't it? You know, people are spending money locally and they're engaging. There's a, a cost-saving in social care terms. There's a, there's a spending uplift in terms of local retail and a general happiness of life point, which should surpass so. all of those. I think so. You know, Eugene touched on this before. We should be creating intergenerational communities C where can people Can I just jump in? Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Richard, you, you, you know, just to give you an idea of how at Guild we're really looking to, to sort of start with a clean sheet of paper. So take, for example, uh, you know, you, you mentioned a dining a, a dining room and a, and a, or a restaurant. So a restaurant, I think, and I've, you know, we've been involved in hundreds of late living projects in the UK, in, in, sorry, in Australia and New Zealand. And what's amazing is that we all think that everyone wants to go and eat in a restaurant, breakfast, lunch and dinner every day. Now, that might work in a hotel or if you're on a cruise ship for seven days. But the reality is if I'm going to live there for the next seven years, the whole dining experience has to be re-looked at. Because the reality of, of a restaurant that you're going to visit seven days a week, three times a day for the next seven years just doesn't exist. So what we're doing is we're actually working with kitchen designers and restaurant designers to re-look at that whole experience. And we're looking back at things like, you know, college dining halls where it's more of a social experience rather than a restaurant experience. And it's this whole social interaction notion that we've got to really understand better if we're really going to create the, the the product that people are going to want to come to. So Japanese style tables where you're what, frying what, the meat on yeah, the on, so, so we're talking about isn't, that, isn't that cultural in a way? I mean that's more suited to a Mediterranean uh, no, uh, I, I, outlook I, no, than a British uh, Yeah, I, I sort of I, I, yes and no, but yeah. the, but the family kitchen, the family dining room yep. is a very different experience to a restaurant. So we, we, we are looking at actually creating dining areas which are much more um, intimate, you know, domestic scale, but also bringing the whole 
cooking experience back to the resident, sure. back to the people. I so think that's not- one of the main areas that we're trying to enable our facilities to be able to provide for residents in their own home. Because, of course, does someone to go to a restaurant three times a day, seven days a week? No, of course they don't. But I think the idea that what we try to do, and I'm not saying we've got 100% right by any stretch of the imagination, every scheme we should see to develop. When I say a dining room, this is actually a multifunctional room. That yeah. can be a dining room that you can have private parties in. You can have a birthday party and, there. And that, you that's, can that's key, isn't it? In, it's the, it's in the terms of making these things stack up for, for an investor... You've got to be smarter with the space, haven't you? I think you need to be smarter with the space, but I think also you have to realise in part with who you are marketing to in the first instance. You know, a lot of this will be about trying to create somewhere, as Eugene said, where people want to live. Another part of it will be children who know that their parents will require more care. This is an area an element that they can have a lifestyle that they don't feel guilty about. They're not going into a care home. That care can be tailored for. Normally people move in, as Roy indicated, as some sort of an event that results. And I think hopefully over time you know and as Eugene pioneers the way that people will decide to live there before an event has driven them to make that decision but, but ultimately but it, you're selling to children you're selling exactly. to the family and it's the eldest daughter is it? it's the typically, eldest yeah. daughter, that, the that, oldest daughter that, that helps make that is or is a big influencer on the parents so that that whole narrative it's almost that the care element is some degree relevant so so here is here is our measure when the eldest daughter walks in with mum and dad into the lobby into the reception area and she looks at the parents and says, I could live here, that's when you know you've, you know, you, you, you've created a success. When, she's, when, when, when the children sit there and say to the parents, mum, dad, I could actually live here, that is success mm. for us. And I think as well your design team, your operational team, your development team, they must have that same feeling as well because if we don't feel it, why should anyone Absolutely. else? So, that, let's, so let's bring in Rory O'Hagan there from a sale. Um, in, I mean, in terms of some of these learnings that, that Eugene's described from, from, from Australia and, and some of Richard's points in terms of different social spaces and how we use those, how are you guys responding to that challenge of, of making spaces... Uh, more flexible and of evolving, I suppose, some of these predetermined, uh, you know, I suppose these these cliched viewpoints that some people have around what something should look like. How are you able to push back and move these things forward? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're we're looking at a couple of models. One in particular, which we've been uh, road testing at, at focus groups, uh, and it's getting good traction with local authorities and. Uh, high street uh, institutional landlords it's um you know it's a high street later living community not dissimilar to what eugene's looking at with gill probably smaller in scale uh but it's about looking at the 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 structural upheaval in terms in the high of, street yeah in terms of uh, department stores secondary shopping centers so then by that you mean converting so you potentially would cover a, a debenhams or a top shop yeah. or Re- or you flat yeah, new build. Wide, wide facade, retain the shop front. That becomes a community hub. We're calling it a high street living room. It's a curated space run by residents, but it's very much addressing the street, the community. It's bringing local interest, interest groups into that space. Maybe Sir Philip Green will want to move in. Well, I mean, it's possibly, yeah, there's enough space for him. Uh, but <laughs> it's, um, it's, this, is, this, is, this can work through various channels, through local authorities. It can work for your British lands, your potentials, your, your high street landlords at different tenures as well. And, and that's an interesting point, isn't it, and, and Eugene, in terms of this structural upheaval that we have in England, having spent the last 30 years building far too much retail space, we're now paying that price. What is the opportunity there? Again, you've talked about creating your platform, focusing on urban, centrally located locations. What is the opportunity there for, for local councils 
that are sitting, uh, you know, sitting at the coalface of, of lots of empty retail to, to flip that, those uses over and to embrace some of what, what you're describing? Yeah, so, so the, our model is, is unashamedly urban. We, we, we want to be either on High Street or a five-minute walk from High Street. And uh, we, we build scale. So, our, you know, our preferred numbers are around, you know, 250 apartments, care suites, um, transitional care. So we, we, we're looking to offer a, um, a, 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 a campus-style arrangement so that people can move transition within our, within our community um, as their circumstances change. Now, what that means for the high street is that we're now introducing 200 to 300 people living there, potentially another 60 to 100 people working there who are there during the day. And then Monday, all their guests Monday and friends and family. And then all the friends and family. And, and, and we also include uh, a children's nursery. So, you know, 60 to 80 place nursery, you know, obviously that generates other activity. So we're creating all this activity that, that, not, that doesn't go on a tr- jump on a train at 7am and come back at 7pm and, and leave the high streets, you know, dearth of people. What we believe is that that will then help activate the high streets. But it also, what it also does is it, it provides opportunities for, for local people to work in a full spectrum of employment opportunities mm-hmm. um, where, you know, we, we, we will have people who are cleaning, physiotherapists, dentists, we'll have wellness coaches, we'll have, um, you know, uh, preschool teachers, uh, we'll have a whole, we'll have managers, we'll have admin people. So what it does is it, re- it kickstarts the high streets that are s- suffering at the moment because of the, because of the retail issues that, that, that are surrounding a lot of, uh, a lot of towns in the UK. Do, do, do we know, I mean, it's, it's interesting because when you look at how countries like Japan have evolved in terms of some of their urban environments shrinking because of the, the nature of their population change, yet that's been embraced in many cases through really, really focused investment in public transit and other measures to drive up accessibility. Is that something that UK councils are going to need to look at to accommodate your model? I think I think what our model does is is it changes the nature of the people living there from a housing supply perspective because every apartment that we build for someone who is downsizing uh, that person is typically moving single or, 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 or as a couple out of a three to four bedroom home within a three to five mile radius. Now these people are living in three and four bedroom homes as as a single person typically, uh, where and 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 that how they're blocking those houses for young families to move back into. Whereas if you build a residential apartment, then that's really only going to attract a a, a person who can live in a one or two bedroom unit, either very small family, or or singles or couples. Building one retirement unit actually builds two releases two dwellings. And that. It can deal with the other issue we have in the UK housing market, which is that that second and third time buyer. That's exactly right. And, and if you and, put that into perspective, um, looking at different sectors, there are seven million senior living households compared to five million and two million for built to rent and student, respectively. So, if you're releasing that number of households, they're going to have a significant impact. Um, on this housing supply housing and the reinvigoration of moving families back into more right. central locations in town. Well, that's that a massive win for the government with all the transactional taxes that, that go along with that. Yeah, I mean, there's, there, there, there has been work done on modelling, you know, uh, stamp duty ta- tax exemption for downsizers. It would actually be cash 
cash neutral, given the subsequent moves in the uh, the housing market. Yeah, we, we saw a huge impact in Australia when yeah. that happened, when they eliminated stamp duty for people buying into retirement villages. Uh, it was actually a, an upflow, not a downflow for really? the government, right. go- government revenues. And, and that's, I think, quite an interesting point, particularly, Rory O'Hagan, when you put that alongside some of the very real benefits to healthcare and social care. But but coming back to this question around accessibility, because it's it's one thing looking at London and, 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 and real big global cities, but I suppose in in, in more regional parts of, of Britain where public buses don't exist to the same degree they do in London and, and Manchester or, or tram networks or metro networks, how do you as architects, how can, can the, the architecture and design profession work with, with, with councils to look at how we, we work these town centres to make them more accessible places, the sorts of places where Eugene can come in with Guild Living and say, you know what, we're going to sort out this mess in this high street and we're going to bring 350 residents and all the staff, all the families. What needs to be put in place in terms of master planning to make Eugene's vision uh, more likely to succeed? Uh, I think there needs to be greater clarity on the interpretation of C2 use class. Uh, so it's, you know... Okay, so it's in com- plain English for, for people, what does that mean? Right, so general housing C3 use class. Um, C2 can be everything from care homes right through to retirement living, but it's that interpretation of C2, that, that threshold between C3 and C2 is inconsistent. Now, that's a big inhibitor to investment. And this needs to be done centrally and, and, and then dictated down yeah, to local yeah, authorities. Yeah, at the moment it's interpreted differently borough by borough and that inconsistency eugene would would make obviously makes life difficult for you working with with a partner such as lng to have a different conversation in in hundreds of different locations yeah look i mean the reality is that uh we 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 are we easily qualify as a c2 use class because we we have embedded care within our within our community but explaining that often to different councils who have different interpretations is the difficult part ultimately we get there but you know, we 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 certainly don't um, we don't go in have with in that into that discussion with councils lightly. We we go in well prepared, um, and we are confident because our model is uh, a, you know a, a home for life. Once you move in with us, we, there's two key words that the Australian market has taught me over the last ten years, and I've sat through thousands of of you know interviews and and, and sales interviews. And what, what really concerns most people who are, you know, around the age of 74, 75 is those two words, care security. I'm fine at the moment. I feel great. Um, you know, m- you know uh, my wife's got a few issues or I've got a few issues, but I know it's coming. And I just want to make sure that when it does come, I'm covered, that someone is there to look after me. So the notion that, that um, people don't think about the future of requiring care is actually incorrect. So we need to prepare for that and we need to set up um, these projects, I believe, I truly believe, need to have care provision inside them. Otherwise, otherwise, you're uprooting someone after living in a family home for 20, 30, 40, 50 years into a downsizing situation and then when care, when care requirements are needed, you've got to move them again and that's really not fair. And again, this goes back to my original point that if we, if we provide the right product... And we, and we provide an extraordinary product, the market will come. And that's flexibility. So, so concluding then, Richard Jackson, this, this 
flexibility and this evolution of space that, that we've talked about. It, it seems to be pretty central to this product offering. How do you view, uh, you know, from an institutional investor perspective, how, what, what conversations need to be had there to get more investors comfortable with this? Well, I think the marketplace from an institutional perspective has evolved hugely only in the last 12 months. Um, and your partnership, Eugene, with LNG is a very good indication with that. And I know they're investing in other operators as well and developers. Up until recently, this was not a sector that institutions were really seeking to build as part of a balanced part of their portfolio. But it is now. And I think what we'll, we will continue to see is an evolution of that. Knight Frank estimate this is going to grow by 350%, the fastest growing subsector within the living space. Uh, and I think the variety of products that will be available will also increase, in particular for rental. And I think it's easier, easier in some cases actually for institutions to understand a rental model than a sale model. We're going to try a part rent, part sale model uh, with flexibility to adjust either way depending on where that demand lies and then build it out into our future pipeline. So for us and I think for the rest of the market we will only see an increasing number of institutional investors and if you compare it relative to the established market of the student, the the establishing market of the built rent but very much the emerging market of senior living, I think we're, we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg and what's to come in the sector is huge, huge um, development operational investment potential for what is essentially a structurally long-term supported demand mm. requirement for the UK. And I, I really agree with Eugene. I think those owner-operators who provide a lifestyle and they provide genuine care on site as and when it is required and that flexibility, I think those are the models that will um, continue to do extremely well. I think those models where people have offered care but it is not actually provided in reality when you move in, I think those will be the operators that will struggle. So I think high quality operators, not necessarily expensive propositions. I think we need to build a broad range of offering for different price points, demographics and locations but I think this marketplace is in its absolute infancy and we're going to see a huge amount of growth and, and Rory, Rory O'Hagan from a from your perspective on, on on the architecture and on the planning side of things how do we educate the the, the, the planning community to the it, it so that it's ready for this this rewriting of the rules for this revolution that we've talked about here um, I guess in a way that uh, the sector um, demystified and built a consensus around built to rent, which was a fairly exotic, uh, unknown uh, uh, model in this country uh, eight, nine years ago. Uh, we do that through multidisciplinary bodies like the Urban Land Institute uh, with the Later Living Guide coming out in a few months uh, and really educate on, on the broader benefits of uh, right-sizer accommodation in terms of the uh, local housing market. Uh, the big thing that isn't really talked about enough is all the academic work supporting uh, the fact that you move into later living accommodation, it will improve your health outcomes, it, will, uh, it can reduce frailty, it can uh, improve memory recall. You know, it's it's as simple as that. Move in here, and it will improve your life. And and, and in conclusion, Eugene, what, what's been? Give us one of the most startling facts that that you've seen throughout your career. What, what one of the, the the you know the most exciting outcomes that you've seen this marketplace able to to create? Look, um, I, I, as as you can tell, I've, or as you've heard, I've moved, moved up here from Australia, and the reason I moved. To the UK. It's for our fantastic political <laughs> discourse that we have in this country. And the climate. 
you know, wonderful climate. Uh, what, what, what excites me and what gets me up every day is I think we're at the precipice of coming up with a, a major shift in one of the biggest sectors in the world. This is a global phenomenon. Let me tell you, this is, you know, I've, I've spoken at conferences in China and Singapore and US, all over the world, and the reality is this is not unique to the UK, but what's unique to the UK is we're starting with a clean sheet of paper. And I urge everyone involved in the, who wants to get involved in the sector to be brave. And, and if we are brave, we'll come up with, I believe, very, very, very quickly, and I'm talking within two to three years, a model that the rest of the world would look at and copy. And I, I, I truly believe that. Now, We've found a great partner in LNG who who is very much aligned with our with our mission, and that is to to, to change people's lives. But you know, I, I think that it's it, there's room here for any number of investors, any number of operators, any number of architects, and and I think together, the we'll look back in in ten twenty years time, and as I do now in some of the projects I've already done. And to sit back and the greatest satisfaction I get is when you make a change to someone's life where the children come up and hug you and say, I've, my, I've never seen my mother, I've never seen my father happier in their lives. That's, that's what it's about. Yeah. So be brave and, and rip up the system and change people's lives. Absolutely. Fantastic stuff. Well, thanks very much to Eugene Marchese from Guild Living, to Richard Jackson from Apache Capital, and to Rory O'Hagan from Asail. This has been this week's Resi podcast. Please head to propertyweek.com for the latest on this year's Resi convention. Uh, I've been Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. Thanks very much for listening.